This is where your typical ad read would go. It would typically say something like, Hi, I'm Winston from HubSpot. And then proceed to tell you why you should buy HubSpot. But I'm not going to do that. Sorry, expectations. I want to tell you about someone else. Later in the episode, we'll hear from one of HubSpot's customers that turned stylish beanies into a force to fight pediatric cancer. Learn more about how HubSpot can help you grow your business at HubSpot.com slash customer love. <laughs> okay. The rise of artificial intelligence, automation, and bots disrupts far more than the way we do business. It redefines every aspect of our lives. But where exactly is all this new technology headed? And are we steering that technology in a direction that creates the best future for the most people? Kate O'Neill is the author of Tech Humanist, How Data and Technology Shape the Future of Meaningful Human Experience. In a previous life, she was one of the first 100 employees at Netflix. And today, Kate's work has taken her to collaborate with businesses, cities, and even the UN. Kate talks about how we can create more meaningful, intentional, and integrated experiences that better align with businesses and people. She also tells me how we can avoid scaling unintended consequences, amplifying bias, and valuing growth at all costs. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. I'm really fascinated by the, you know, the book that you just rolled up out with Tech Humanists. And I, I want to start really with the, the title and the prompt for this book. What is a tech humanist? It's such a fun question because I feel like you could take it in a bunch of ways. But for me, the idea was that humanity matters and that the more we scale uh, solutions and b business solutions in particular through technology, the more we should do that in alignment with human outcomes and human objectives. I mean, why do we even have to consider that? Do you think that technology today sort of lost humanity somewhere along the way or is devoid of that? Yeah, I think that uh, technology is, is driven largely by business objectives, right? Like te technology doesn't happen on its own. It doesn't grow on its own. It's, it, yeah. In most cases, it's, it's going to be you know, profit motives and business objectives that are moving it forward. And I think a lot of the emerging technologies like automation, artificial intelligence, and so on, have within them the potential for additional capacity. They're going to scale in ways that we that are unprecedented. So I think there's an there's an opportunity to to sort of step up a layer, step back and say, you know, what is it that we're doing with this and how can we achieve what's good for business while also thinking about what's good for humanity? Why wouldn't we do that? I feel like it's an ethical obligation yeah. at this point. Yeah, and so I think, you know, even even stepping back for a moment and thinking about you do you do a nice job in the book of kind of first setting the stage for okay, what is it that actually makes humans human? You know, what is that thing that we do need to remember and we do need to preserve as we move into this more rapidly developing age of technology? What is it that, that makes us distinct? Right. I think that's such an interesting question because I ask this when I do speaking at keynotes and, and conferences and such a lot. And I kind of get a vibe from the, the audience of their answers. And so often, I think if you ask what makes humans human or what makes humans uniquely human, I think the tendency is people want to go to answers like creativity yeah. or innovation or problem solving. 
But we see that happening in the animal kingdom outside of humans. And I, I think that's not uniquely ours, and it, it doesn't really define us. And I think we think about empathy and we think about compassion and love. And that also I think we can see happening within non-human animals. And so what I think is, is more uniquely ours, what really makes humans human, has to do with a sense of meaning, of asking big questions and trying to understand what matters in the way we communicate with one another and in the way we conduct our lives and, and how we you know, sort of gauge our moral compass and our ethical frame. So the fact that meaning, or if you accept that meaning is uh, what makes humans human, it sort of starts to set up an entire construct that you just, it follows very logically that meaning becomes the, the barometer by which you can make a lot of decisions about what business should do, how it should be uh, strategically aligned, right. and all those kinds of things. So I feel like purpose is the shape that meaning takes in business, uh, and it becomes very useful to start thinking about organizational strategic purpose as an aligning tool for business. And that starts yeah. to set up the entire set of tools and frameworks that I, I lay out in the book around human-centric digital transformation, which really takes its cue from purpose. You would think that we build this technology. It comes out of our creativity. It comes out of our ingenuity. So why wouldn't that purpose just inherently be in there? Why couldn't we trust that it would just naturally have meaning and be purpose-driven as technology progresses? Right. And that that's a very valid question and a very valid ponder to have, I think. And, and I think what happens is that um, we have used this ratio commonly known as profit to gauge whether business is successful and effective. And yeah. profit is, um, is a useful ratio, but it is not the be-all, end-all of whether a business is achieving its aims, is setting out what it's, is doing what it's set out to do. So I think the bigger question of like, what is it that we're trying to do and, and trying to do at scale is really the question that needs to be asked. And then per profit is one of the sort of directional indicators of whether you're on the right track with you know, sort of economic aspects of the business model. But there are fundamental questions about brand and culture and how you interact with the humans inside and outside the business yeah. that have to be part of that consideration too. Yeah, and so that's a pretty big disconnect, right? I mean, right. the question in my mind is, what do you do about that? Because yeah. profit as a motive, you know, without reversing profit as a motive, how do you ensure a future in which technology does drive human purpose and, and is for the betterment of society? Yeah. And so I think one of the big opportunities is for us to recognize that what has been built in the technology solutions thus far has often not been, been built with this sort of bigger mindset of what is it that we're trying to encode of our values and, and what do we want to be intentional about with the decisions that we're putting into algorithms and algorithmic decision making. And I often say yeah. machines are what we encode of ourselves. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that. We acknowledge that the biases that we, we carry uh, as well as the values that we hold dear are what we encode knowingly or unknowingly into, into machines. So I feel like it's an opportunity as these technologies emerge and accelerate uh, in business to step back and say, well, what would we like to encode of ourselves? Why wouldn't we want to encode yeah. our best selves, our, our most enlightened selves, our most egalitarian viewpoints, and, and get that to the case where 
the machines are accelerating what's good about us and, and really setting a course for the best futures for the most people. And that's really what I hope to, to inspire people to think about with this book is that I think truly the best futures for the most people is a sort of guideline that should be how we're thinking about aligning business objectives and human objectives going forward. There's just no reason not to use that as a parameter for what success looks like. Yeah. Can you give me an example of that, of, of a technology or a time in which we have amplified a bias as opposed to advanced our sort of best will? Well, amplifying bias, I feel like, happens in, in many ways that uh, have to do with uh, collecting data sets that don't necessarily represent diverse enough or inclusive enough set of people uh, or that uh, sort of skew the, the data toward an interpretation that isn't necessarily uh, equal or equitable. And so we see that a lot within um, law enforcement and criminal justice types of applications where data sets that are encoded within processing algorithms in those systems are skewing toward reviewing people within those systems if they happen to fall within African-American uh, demographics that they are going to be perceived as more likely to have committed crimes. And it's a really, really pervasive problem within algorithmic yeah. decision-making in that level. I would love to hear what brought you into this work. Like, what, what is it about this that, that you're personally passionate about? Well, it's funny that the construct or the, the concept of meaning uh, that I talk about as being uniquely human is one that I feel like was probably my entry point into this because I'm a linguist by education. So my first hmm. really sort of um, rigorous thought toward what meaning is and was uh, had to do with the semantic level of meaning and the way we communicate and what we convey to one another. And there's this kind of um, model that I think about as it relates to communication about there fundamentally being three parts of communication. The, what the speaker intends to convey and the message itself as a separate part and then what the listener right. receives of that communication and where there is any kind of overlap uh, or synergy between those three parts, that's where shared understanding is and that fundamentally is what meaning is about. And I feel like that right. model applies across so many other sort of levels of abstraction of meaning when you think about purpose or truth or pattern recognition or even when you get out to like cosmic and existential uh, interpretations of meaning, there is this sense that the way that we find overlap between the intentionality and the reception of an idea or any of that is, is where that meaning opportunity is. Uh, and it's about what matters. It's about what's significant in any of those levels of interpretation. So for me, that I think linguistics and language was my entry point. And just throughout my career, 20 plus years in technology in various capacities, uh, it's always been fascinating to me to think about how we use technology to create better, more meaningful human connections and what, what we're doing with that. Yeah. So that there's such a huge opportunity there, I think, for us to just, you know, think more about using technology to help people communicate better, help people connect better, and have more meaningful experiences of the world around them. We'll be right back with more from Kate after this quick break. Love Your Melon began with the simple idea of putting a hat on every child battling cancer in America. Their original goal, 45,000 hats. 
And they did that, pretty quickly. So Love Your Melon set a new goal, giving $1 million to pediatric cancer research and providing immediate support to children and their families. But getting there meant seriously overhauling their sales strategy. We weren't using HubSpot too far beyond blogging, um, designing some landing pages, creating some automatic emails. That's Aaron Naft. I'm the business development director here at Love Your Melon. Six months after being hired, Aaron found himself launching something Love Your Melon had never attempted before, wholesale. Now don't get me wrong, they experimented with what wholesale could look like, but it ended up being a handful of retailers that we would more or less ship products to that they had no idea what they were getting. It was inventory that we had at the office that was saleable, um, extra inventory that we had in the warehouse. This was a time where we struggled to have inventory on hand. But retailers were out there. At the beginning, we were getting hundreds of leads a day. Only hitch? The sales team were attempting to qualify them one by one. Immensely inefficient. Here's the thing. Not all wholesalers are a good fit. You can't be selling beanies out of the back of your truck. Love Your Melon needed a way to qualify potential wholesalers without discounting the whole farm. So we actually used HubSpot to put together um, a pretty killer framework of email automation that would more or less qualify leads for us based on the emails that they were responding to and the different requirements we were asking them to complete. Uh, it was a, a huge key to our success in creating a funnel and qualifying leads and understanding when a rep needed to get involved versus when a computer could do the work for us. And the result? At the end of our first year, you know, we went from having maybe five unofficial retailers to having over 300. In our second year, we got even closer to 600, and it's led us to bring on customers as large as Dick's Sporting Goods. To date, Love Your Melon has given over $6.1 million to the fight against pediatric cancer and over 160,000 hats to children battling cancer. Check out more stories from our customers at HubSpot.com slash customer love. HubSpot. Grow better. Are you more interested in kind of preventing a dystopian future <laughs> of technology uh, bringing us astray or in uh, leaning into and amplifying um, an optimistic future of finding ways to advance humanity through technology? Which, which is the bigger draw to you? That's such a great question. And it's funny that gives me the opportunity to give the answer that you, you probably saw me lean into a lot in the book, which is both and. <laughs> this, this both and concept is a really important model for me. And I feel like the, the way I'm wired is optimistic. I, I want to think about the best outcomes. I want us to lean toward the, the good future, you know, the, the, the best we can do. Uh, but I think I also have a pragmatic side, and, and I recognize that what we need to do is build guardrails around the, the bad possibilities, you know, the dystopian right. future, so that that doesn't scale. And we have to be intentional about building the things that, that we intend to have out there so that the unintended consequences are not what scales. I have an example in the yeah. book that you probably ran across. Amazon, with their Amazon Go store, did a fantastic job of creating this uh, innovative space where you walk into a, just a feels like a regular grocery store and you pick things up off the shelf and then you just walk out. And just the fact that you have the, the app on your phone, you're logged in, yeah. there are cameras and sensors everywhere, you know, kind of picking up what it is that you're 
you're taking with you just automatically charge you for it. And I think that's a really frictionless, amazing uh, innovation, and I'm excited about that. Of course, you know, it brings up all these sort of side considerations about what happens to people whose jobs are in cashiering. Job loss. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. what, what really interests me about this is that the instructions as you open the app for the first time that walk you through how to use the, the store and the app say that because you are charged for what you take off the shelf, don't take anything off the shelf for anyone else. And I, as soon as I read that, it kind of summed up this little red flag for me where I was like, uh, wait a minute. That means that all the times that I get asked, I'm a pretty tall person, so the times that I get asked in a grocery store to reach something off the top shelf for somebody, like I can't do that because it's going to get charged to me. Now, of course, you can go up to a store employee or something like that and have them fix the charge afterwards. But the point is it would discourage helping in the store. And, right. And realistically, this cashierless model that Amazon has pioneered with this is going to become the dominant face of retail. Like, let's be realistic about that. They're, yeah. you know, they've got these whole food stores and they're they're planning to scale their retail presence. Uh, so that's going to become the, the paradigm through which we experience retail. So now we won't be helping each other in any store environment. And then how long would it be before we just kind of get conditioned out of helping each other in any context whatsoever? I mean, it sounds a little hyperbolic, Maybe take in a little too extremes, but I think that's the way we have to think about scaling unintended consequences and that experience yeah. at scale really does change culture because experience at scale is culture. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that is the fine edge of it, right, Kate? So I think what's really interesting is you moved right even beyond the the most common thing people would point to, which is the just mass unemployment that could result in that to something even more human and and, and more intrinsic, which is changing our makeup and changing our behavior with each other. And so for every given action, for the simple action of streamlining someone's day and removing friction, there are multiple consequences from the very practical to the very abstract that stem off from that. I mean, it is the the ripple effect of a single decision, right? Exactly. And I, I think that makes this work incredibly important, but also just incredibly complex because I don't think that people, businesses, well, some, maybe some are, but I think the majority of businesses out there aren't inherently evil. And they are, no. you know, they are trying to, to make decisions that, that solve a human, human, human problem. But it's hard to think through all of the consequences. And it does make you wonder if we need someone whose role it is to model that out in the same way that you model out growth trajectory and every other factor within business. Right, exactly. I think growth is such a sort of missed opportunity as a goal. Growth by itself is not inherently valuable, but growth in line with a goal, growth in line with a larger objective and a, and a strategic purpose is fantastic. Right. And that's what scale looks like when you do it well. If you really think through all the ways that your purpose is going to be realized in brand, in culture, in experience, and how you're going to operationalize that all the way through all the decisions that you'll make, even down to priorities and, and meeting schedule and hierarchy and reporting levels and things like that, then, yeah. then you start thinking about data model and what you're collecting within and around the business to inform more data-driven decisions, more intelligent decisions, and more right. um, seamless decisions as well. So the 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 sort of internet of things opportunities that happen within within business. And then the technology decisions come on top of all of that work to, to make sure you're amplifying and accelerating 
what's really meaningful in the business, not yeah. just throwing technology solutions at a problem that you haven't really thought through well enough to know if you're, if you're really bringing the right things to scale. Is there a structure and incentive model within businesses themselves that can create the landscape for this kind of a change? Or do you need government, do you need regulation to play a check on businesses? How do you scale ethics? basically? It's a really good question. And it's one that I, I tackle in a couple of different ways. One is that I think you can think about uh, scaling ethics or modeling ethics in a business context. One way is in terms of risk reduction. So if you are collecting data that is human data, and eventually there's going to be some sort of risk of privacy leaks, of data breaches and leaks, of, um, yep. of uh, identity fraud or anything like that, uh, you will be at risk of, of some sort of damages. So from a liability standpoint, it behooves companies to take a very disciplined approach to how they're managing human data, for example. Uh, another thing is right. that I think purpose is, is a really helpful tool for aligning a company strategically. And so you can actually use your resources more efficiently and more effectively. And I mean human resources as well as technological resources, operational resources, and so on. If you are all sort of, you know, to use the overwrought metaphor, sort of rowing in the same direction, right? So having that purpose set up front and understanding what it is you're trying to do and trying to do at scale really does help you um, deploy your assets most effectively. I think like an example of, of what that looks like is, for example, on Disney theme parks. And I, I love this, um, this instance. They have uh, create magical experiences as their purpose statement. It's just three words, right? But that purpose articulation is so crisp and so clear that you can imagine anybody within the organization, top to bottom, side to side, you know, wherever they are within the hierarchy or, you know, what function they have, being able to have the clarity to have when, when problems are brought to them, when they, they need to make decisions, they just have to think, how do I solve this problem so that it creates the most magical experiences for our guests? And the other thing is that meaningful experiences really can be tied to directional metrics like more memorable experiences and people having more, being more likely to be loyal, come back and, and buy again from you and tell their friends and uh, all of the sorts of things that have that are the kind of holistic metrics of customer experience that we all want, like decreased churn and increased retention and things like that, they're all going to come most likely from putting your emphasis on creating more meaningful experiences for people. It's interesting to me that you planted this work in the tech industry, because when you think about tech, you think move fast, take <laughs> risks, break things, uh, innovate. You know, it's, it's so much about speed and short-term results and proving yourself as fast as possible. How do you balance that focus on short-term and speed with this really more long-term vision of, uh, of growing in a, in a better way for humanity? Well, I guess one, one answer to the question is every company is a tech company these days, right? Like every company sure. is looking for its digital transformation and looking for how it can use functions like automation and what, what do chatbots look like for their organization? What does, how, do the, how does the Internet of Things apply and, and what does smart data bring them? Uh, so every company is really looking for that advantage. So the, the, the conversation about tech is broader than what we traditionally think of as tech companies. 
Um, yep. But I do think that the whole move fast and break things <laughs> kind of aesthetic has proven itself and we have seen things get broken. So <laughs> it's the right yeah. it's the right time for us to step back from that and say, you know, there's nothing wrong with an agile approach. Um, iterative learning is very useful. And as long as you cultivate a knowledge culture, a learning culture within your organization, you can move fast by all means. And you can take iterative learnings back into your organization and make your data model smarter, make your people smarter, uh, and make your approach more holistic and more integrative in the way that you're servicing all the stakeholders that are relative to your organization. Yeah. So this is why I'm having conversations with cities such as Amsterdam. This is why I'm talking to museums, why I'm talking to nonprofit associations and uh, professional associations. Uh, it's, it's relevant for so many types of entities to be thinking about um, how the emerging technologies are changing the landscape and, and what people yeah. expect of how they're going to have interactions, as well as how can we create the best world possible. I mean, I was just at the UN last week getting to have a conversation about innovation uh, because when you flip this discussion on its head, we're really talking about uh, how this affects all of humanity and how can we can achieve global good, you know, with the work that's being right. done across all these different entities. So there's a much bigger conversation to be had, I think. And it goes back to your earlier question about, you know, are we trying to create the sort of a utopia or are we trying to avoid dystopia? And I think I think it is this kind of both end, like let's make sure we're building all the best possible pathways to a good outcome while also putting in place any kind of barriers to or regulations around what could become the dystopia. For us to do this right, Kate, for us to turn down the uh, the number of unforeseen consequences on humanity, for us to turn up the positive impact that businesses of all sorts to ha can have on humanity, do you think this is just about paving the way for more tech humanist style businesses to emerge? Or do you think there's an element of this that like every business needs to hire an ethicist or adopt their culture so that there is there are these sorts of inflection points in their own development. Is this an all or nothing play or is this really about empowering those businesses, that subset of businesses that do this? We have to hold businesses accountable for the way they use human data. Absolutely. We need to make sure that we're pushing on Facebook and we're pushing on Twitter and Amazon and Google and all of all of the businesses that collect our data and use our data to make sure they're treating it with respect and to make sure that they're doing the right things. And I think as business leaders, we have to be sure that within our organizations, because there is risk and liability associated with this, we need to be having those conversations at every level. So that's one. Two is we do need to talk about regulation. We need to understand what it looks like to have the right kind of government oversight or of some yeah. sort of body ov overseeing the, the transactional exchange of human data and what it means to keep that private and protected and what's appropriate with that and, and what, it, what does that whole model look like. We've only just begun to touch on that subject. You know, Europe is ahead of the U.S. in having their regulation in place. And I don't know what it'll look like for the U.S. as a whole, but I know that that conversation yeah. needs to advance urgently. And then the third piece is at, a, at an individual level. We all have a responsibility since we participate, whether we like it or not, in contributing data into this larger data set. You know, even if we weren't carrying around phones with us, which are beacons that are, you know, transmitting data all the time, we'd still be being tracked 
on the cameras that are everywhere around cities on sensors. Uh, we'd be being tracked all over the place. So our very existence is tracked in data all the time. And it behooves us as individuals to become more sophisticated, more savvy about what we're giving up when we give up data and what kind of a, um, an offering is made back to us in exchange for that data. And it, oftentimes yeah. it's a very useful exchange. We get convenience, we get streamlined experiences, we get simplicity, uh, discounts, you know, things that align with what we're trying to accomplish with our motivations and so on. That's all great. But I think we need to become just more uh, smart about the ways that we're approaching that exchange and what we know about that exchange, what we know about who's collecting what and how we participate in those things. So it's a three-part conversation. Uh, business has a huge part to play in leading the right. way and making sure that it's doing the right things, that each business is doing the right things for its own sake, as well as how it contributes to that whole ecosystem of ethical, responsible data use and, and staging the way for um, for a good future, the, a future that we all want to be part of and that we can leave for the next generations. Well, we'll leave it there. You promised us you were an optimist and you paid off. <laughs> thank you so much for the book. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with us, Kate. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Megan. Today's episode was produced by Matthew Brown with additional help from Isis Madrid. The music you're hearing right now comes from Synchronize. And special thanks to today's guest, Kate O'Neill. You can find a copy of Tech Humanist and Kate's other works wherever books are sold. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe so you can get every new episode delivered right there to your feed. So go ahead and tap that subscribe button. And you can find me on Twitter at Meg H. Keeney, or send us a note over at hello at thegrowthshow.com. We always love hearing from you. As always, I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. I'd like to tell you about another podcast I love. It's called 20,000 Hertz. It's a lovingly crafted podcast made by a team of sound designers. It's all about the things we all hear, but don't really think about. They cover everything from the beeps and boops on our devices to the iconic sounds like the NBC chimes. They even explore what other planets sound like on their surface. Whether you're into pop culture, science, or history, there's something there you'll love. The host, Dallas Taylor, shares his passion for our sense of sound and helps open your ears to the world around us. Every episode is filled with highly crafted audio candy. It helps to both engage and educate on the topic and... Honestly, just makes the show a treat to listen to. You can find 20,000 Hertz wherever you find your podcasts. So take a quick moment and go tap that subscribe button. And 20,000 Hertz is all spelled out without any numbers, just letters. T, W, E, you get it. Go subscribe.